The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. This morning we'll be giving attention to verses 33 to the end of the chapter. Actually, we'll go back to verse 31. Luke writes these words. He says, And he, that being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region and he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them now when the sun was setting all those who, uh, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. When it was day, he departed, and he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept, coming, kept, him, would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Well, two weeks ago, uh, we left off at the passage just prior to this, sort of left you on a cliffhanger, pun intended if you were here and you remember. Literally, uh, when we left the text two weeks ago, uh, a lynch mob had run Jesus out of town to, the, to the, the very top of a cliff, attempting to throw him off and execute him summarily at the moment. But miraculously, he's able to escape them. Uh, But the whole narrative before this uh, is important as it leads into what we're going to talk about this morning. Luke records for us in the previous text, Jesus returned to his home synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, his home church, if you will. And he goes there, and it's there that he sort of comes out as far as his public ministry goes. 
Uh, he comes out to his hometown and he goes to church with the people of his own city, the people that uh, would have likely known him from growing up. And he is asked to read and he is handed the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah a very important messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. And he reads it there and he rolls up the scroll and he looks out on the crowd that day and he says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in doing so, he proclaims himself summarily at that moment to be the Messiah who has come to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah. And the people there, uh, like we're going to see today, immediately were in amazement and astonished at the, the things that he was saying. Nobody spoke like that. Nobody said things like that the way he said it. But Jesus doesn't end his, his sermon there. He understands his audience very well, and he knows that they are not of the sort who are believing upon him, uh, but they are interested in the, the miracles that he performed previously in Capernaum, and they want to see his show. They want to see him uh, put, dazzle them with some miracles. They're not interested in truths about Old Testament prophecies and whether he's the Messiah. And so he takes them on a, a brief tour of a couple of Old Testament passages, and he does so for a very specific purpose. He wants to remind them and explain to them some very unpleasant truths to a very nationalistic crowd who, who believes themselves to be God's only called people. He explains to them that that is in fact not true, that the gospel of the good news that God would send his Messiah to come and redeem humanity was not just a message for Israel, but it was a message and always has been a message for the world, for the nations. And he further explains that believing Gentiles were going to enter the kingdom while Jews who rejected his messiahship would be excluded. And he insinuates that the crowd that he's standing before that day fits the latter category. That's a pretty bold message to preach to any church. It's certainly a bold message to preach to your home church where people know you. And they respond in like fashion, just about like you would imagine people would respond. They turned into uh, a, a lynch mob and they run him out of the church and they, they drive him out to the, to the brow of a cliff and they intend to throw him off and kill him at the moment and yet he escapes. And we were left at the end of that text with some questions. Well, what is he going to do now? Where does he go next? What is his strategy going to be? I mean, that didn't work out so well for him, if you will, in a practical sense in Nazareth. So where's he going to go next? And is he going to sort of come up with a new tactic? Is he going to adjust fire and, and maybe uh, uh, come up with a less risky strategy in the next town? Well, the answer to our question is answered very quickly for us in, in the passage that we'll look at this morning. The answer to the question is absolutely not. He'll continue with his exact same strategy. He simply moves to a new location and he marches right into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as we were told last time was his habit. He continues his habit of marching right into the Jewish synagogue and he teaches and he preaches the truth. And that's where we find him in our passage this morning. Different town, a different crowd, the same thing. A different response though. And what we have in our text this morning 
Luke is summarizing for us, sort of in snapshot fashion, Jesus' Galilean ministry. As Jesus travels around Galilee, he does the kinds of things in various places that Luke describes as happening here at Capernaum. He wants us to understand what Jesus' ministry in general looked like, and he gives us a couple of very clear examples of things that took place in, uh, in Capernaum, uh, and then he sort of, in doing so, gives us a template for the ministry of Jesus. And there are two really very important characteristics of Jesus' ministry that I want you to capture this morning because I think they're the main issue that Luke is trying to point us to. The ministry of Jesus is marked by two things that recur over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke. The first is authority, and the second is compassion. The ministry of Jesus was marked everywhere he went by authority, authority that nobody else had but him. Authority unlike anything that the religious teachers of his day possessed. His teaching came off with authority. His ministry was driven by a power and authority that was wholly unparalleled. And yet his ministry was also marked with a tremendous, very personal and very real compassion for people, a love for people, a true brokenness of heart for human suffering and the pain that people deal with living on this planet and in this world that's fallen and broken and tainted by sin. Many today in, in sort of in the, in the contemporary church, either intentionally in some cases or unintentionally, try to set these two things at odds against one another. Authority and teaching and compassion for human suffering as though somehow they're mutually exclusive and as the people of God doing the ministry of Christ in the modern world, we have to choose one above the other. And I want you to hear loud and clear and see loud and clear from the ministry of Jesus this morning as Luke displays it for us that these two things are not mutually exclusive but they are in perfect harmony in the ministry of Jesus and they ought to be in perfect harmony in the ministry of any who represent him in the world, whether in the first century or today. The ministry of the gospel of Jesus should be a ministry that comes off with power and with authority, but it also has to be a ministry that's marked by a genuine care and concern for human suffering. And Luke is going to give us that in very, very vivid language and very, very vivid illustration here this morning. So I want you to pay attention to that. And he begins by showing us the authority of Jesus. And the authority of Jesus is going to show up in really three categories in the text. The first is the authority that comes through his teaching. And we see that in the first, uh, first two verses of the text, 31 and 32. And again, it's reiterated down in 42 and 44. We're told that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to modern-day Capernaum before. Incidentally, I was sort of supposed to be there now, this week. I had a, a couple of weeks ago an opportunity to jump in on a, a trip to Israel, a last-minute trip uh, with a small group of other believers here from Charleston. And it was an opportunity, sort of a last-minute opportunity that I, I immediately was jumping on. And if you pay attention much to the news as of late, but what hasn't been the best time to make that trip as rockets and such were launched all throughout the week last week uh, and all of that ceased by the end of the week but it was a little too late to make the trip happen but I was excited about getting on this trip particularly for one reason I've been to Israel before actually with uh, some of you who are in the room right now about 12 years ago no 13 years ago or such we 
about 10 of us went, and so I've been before, but I really wanted to go on this trip as the, as the opportunity presented itself because I knew I'm preaching through Luke, and I knew that many of the places that we're going to encounter in our journey through Luke would have been places I would have been able to visit, and my plan sort of secretly was to go to some of those places and film some little video clips in those locations to be able to incorporate into the and to the, the series. In particular, in particular, uh, I, I was thinking of Capernaum because that was our next text, and I've been there. And if you were to go to Capernaum today, there's a, a sign right outside of this, the town that says, well, there it is for you right now, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And I had these uh, great visions of grandeur of me standing by that sign talking to you. And so visions of grandeur is all that they will ever be, uh, apparently, as in the near future at least. Uh, however, uh, if you were to go there today, you would see some things in the city, Capernaum, that we're talking about, that Luke introduces us to. It becomes sort of the home base of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And if you were to go there today, you can visit and you can see some things that are important there. You can see, well, a sign that tells you what it is. We're going to talk this morning, we've already read Luke talking about some things that took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. You can go and see the, the ruins that, in the archaeological dig where they've uncovered the ruins of the synagogue at, at Capernaum. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the, that the ruins that you see in that picture are from about, a, about the 4th century. But they're built atop the ruins of the 1st century synagogue that was in the same location. And you could get a sense, at least, for what that sort of looked like early on in history, much further back. You could also find in Capernaum, if you were to go there today, uh, the, the excavated ruins of Peter's home, which we'll also mention and talk about a bit this morning. Uh, and it, would, it looks sort of like that. They've excavated uh, this place. And it was an important place. Uh, specifically, a miracle takes place there that we read about this morning. Uh, but also believers gathered there and worshiped the Lord in, this, in the early church there at, at Capernaum. If you were to go there today, you'd see a, a big church is built, a modern church building is built right over the top of that site, which is, for whatever reason, what they've done historically in, in many of the holy sites is built modern buildings right over the ruins. Regardless, you can go and you can still see the ruins either way. Uh, but it's an interesting place to go. Both of these locations are referenced in Luke chapter 4. So if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you can visit that place. And I would highly encourage you to do so if given the opportunity. But Capernaum was a very different town than Nazareth. Nazareth was a, a rural sort of village. It was a rural village sort of up in the mountains. Uh, uh, Capernaum was a, 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 a busier, uh, more uh, a trade-oriented a city right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. I'm not sure how well it shows up, but you can sort of see um, uh, on the map there where, where Nazareth is sort of down to the left, up, and you can sort of tell up at a high elevation. It's about 1,300 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is right there on the ed very edge of the Sea of Galilee, uh, a good little trek uh, from, from Nazareth, uh, but it's somewhere around 695 feet below sea level. So when Luke says Jesus went down from Nazareth to Capernaum, he literally, it wasn't like, you know, he went down to the store. Like we say in the south, he literally went down like several, couple thousand, you know, feet in elevation down to Galilee. It was about 20, 28 miles north. And, uh, and that's where he goes. It was a very busy harbor. In the first century, there was an eight-foot seawall that, that sort of buffeted the 2,500 uh, uh, sort of uh, foot uh, town promenade around the city. And they had piers that went out about 100 feet out into the sea. And so it was a pretty remarkable place in its day. And it was a busy place. Um, uh, it sat 
right adjacent to a very busy trade route, so there was all sorts of trade taking place along this, this general area, and so it was a great advantageous place to, to sort of plant ministry. There were people traveling through there of all sorts and shapes and types, and that's where Jesus planted himself. It was a fishing town, a very diverse population, largely Jews, but there were plenty of Gentiles in the area, mainly fishermen and, and artisans and uh, farmers and merchants and Roman officials and even tax collectors. I believe it's right near this location where Matthew, who later becomes a, a, one of the apostles, had set up his tax collecting booth. And so a lot happens here in Capernaum. And so Jesus goes to Capernaum, and he does what he always does. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and we're told that he's been teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the indication by the language is this isn't just a, a one-time event, but he's planted himself there, and this is a weekly occur occurrence. He's teaching regularly in the, the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath. And, and his teaching is garnering the same kind of response that it did initially in Nazareth, and that is, Luke tells us, the people are astonished at his teaching, his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. That is to say when he stood up and preached that people were blown away with what they heard. They, were, they, they, they sat on the edge of their seats listening, riveted in their attention to what he had to say. They had never heard anything like what Jesus was saying and doing and teaching in their midst. It was remarkable. Luke uses this, this, this word authority 27 times in Luke and Acts. He wants us to understand very clearly that Jesus was the one who carried himself with clear divine authority. And it is the emphasis of this passage. And his, his authority shows up in multiple ways, as I've mentioned, but it shows up initially here, and Luke wants us to, to, to primarily see that his authority comes through his preaching, through his teaching. He preached with authority. He declared clear, compelling truth, and he demanded a response from his audience. You didn't drift off to sleep in a Jesus sermon. You might drift off to sleep this morning, but you wouldn't have drifted off to sleep in his message ever because he carried himself with an authority and people hung on every word. And it's worth noting here that this was the main priority of Jesus' ministry. On his way to the cross, from his, his beginning of his public ministry to the cross, the main priority of the ministry of Jesus was preaching the good news to people. His ministry was that of preaching. Now, as we'll see, he did a lot of other things, but he was never confused about what was the main thing. The main thing that he did was he preached the gospel to the world. To anyone who would listen to it, he preached. He traveled, he preached. He went in synagogues, he preached. He walked along the roadside, he preached, and he taught. We see in verse 31 that really that this idea brackets this whole passage that Luke gives us. In verse 31, we're told he was teaching in the synagogue, and at the end of the passage, in verses 43 and 44, he leaves us with this reality where he says, I must preach the good news to the kingdom. I was sent for this purpose. Jesus has a clear understanding, and Luke wants you to know that that's what Jesus was about. He was about preaching the truth. He was sent for the purpose of preaching. He was sent for the purpose of teaching truth to people who were captivated and captured, enslaved to lies. He was a preacher. He went from one town to the next, and everywhere he went, he started there by preaching. At heart, he's a preacher. Now, Jesus knew that Satan was the father of lies, and, and he knew that 
he was destroying men through deception, and that's been what he's done uh, generation after generation. But Jesus himself was the literal embodiment of truth. He was truth in, in living color. Jesus in John 14, verse 6 said, you may recall if you've read the, the Gospel of John, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. He doesn't appeal to the truth. He doesn't point people to the truth. He is the truth. He's the truth in living color. And everything that comes out of his mouth is literal truth. He doesn't have to read something to find the truth. He is the truth. He knows the truth. He defines the truth. He doesn't point people to the truth. He is the truth. He displays the truth. And so his ministry is first and foremost a ministry of truth. And his ministry is a ministry of preaching the truth because it's the truth that exposes lies and sets men free. That's what the New Testament teaches us. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, he says to a crowd, he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Jesus understands that Satan captivates people with lies, that he entraps people with lies, and he knows that when he comes, he speaks the truth, and the truth exposes lies, and the truth shows lies to be exactly what they are, lies. And when men can hear the truth in contrast to a lie, it has the power to transform their lives, set them free. So wherever he went, he preached truth. It generated all sorts of responses because it carried authority and it demanded a response. In Nazareth, it demanded a response and he got a response. People wanted to kill him. In Capernaum, it gets a different response. His preaching doesn't generate a response of wanting to kill him. It generates a, a response of them wanting to keep him for themselves. And we see that at the end of the text. Jesus is ready to move on and they're trying to keep him at Capernaum. I mean, as we're going to see, he does some pretty miraculous things there. And in their minds, if we can keep this guy around, I mean, we'll have the best preacher in the world. We're going to have a doctor. We're going to have a healer. We're never going to have a problem in this town again. And Jesus has to clarify for them, no, 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 that's not the answer. I'm not here to be hoarded by you. The world needs to hear what I have to say. That's my purpose. Jesus describes his mission as preaching the gospel. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Near the end of his life, you may recall, as he's standing before Pontius Pilate, and they're having this conversation just prior to his crucifixion, Pilate says to him in John 18, So, you're a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. Or you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the what? to the truth, to bear witness to the truth. This is why I've come, to bear witness to the truth. This is what he says in John chapter 18. This is what he says in Luke chapter 4. This is my purpose, to preach the truth. And his preaching ministry was a ministry of truth. And it was a, it was a ministry that had authority because it was a ministry of truth. His authority was not built off of his charisma. His authority was not built off of his wit. His authority was not built off of his ability to, to persuade people. His authority was built off of the fact that he spoke the truth. And the truth, by virtue of what it is, the truth, it bears authority. The spirit-empowered truth declared carries authority. 
And that's great news for people like you and for people like me who are called to take the same good news of Jesus out into a lost and dying world. It's good news to know that, it, that the effectiveness of that work that we, that we set out to do in his name isn't built off of the authority of, of who we are. Aren't you glad that's true? Aren't you glad it's not up to your authority to go out there and, and, and see somebody come to Christ? Aren't you glad to know that the people in your neighborhood and the people in your family and the people in your city, that their eternity is not hanging in the balance based on your charisma or your wit or your ability to persuade them? You have no authority, nor do I have any authority to do that. But the word of God, the truth of God, carries authority. Our responsibility is to know the truth and to embrace the truth and to unleash the truth so people can hear it. And the truth itself goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit and it transforms the hearts of men just like it did in the life and ministry of Jesus. The authority was coming from the truth, not from his person, so to speak. And when you take the gospel of Jesus out of the world, it will go out in power if you tell people the truth. And it will have its effect. Not because you're great, not because you have some innate authority, not because you're remarkably charismatic, but because you're speaking the truth. It will never return void the truth of God. It always accomplishes its purpose. And any ministry, personal or corporate, that imitate, that is going to imitate Christ or seek to imitate Christ is going to be a ministry that's marked by preaching and teaching the truth. Any sort of a ministry that says it imitates Christ, but has a, a, a scarcity of preaching and teaching the truth of Christ is a ministry you want to stay away from because it's built off of some other false authority. There's a sad reality of our world today, to be honest with you, and that's within the, the contemporary, this is just sort of an evaluation of contemporary Christianity, sort of the, the, the minimization of the preaching of the Word of God that takes place in general. Praise God that you're not the kind of congregation that that desires or, or craves such things, but there are many in our culture who do. There has been a sort of a gradual move, at least in my lifetime, of minimizing preaching and teaching in the congregational worship gathering, and minimizing in, in its emphasis in time. That is to say, an argument that shorter is better. I've been told multiple times over the years uh, by people in snarky sorts of ways, usually, but not always, that if you can't say what you gotta say in 20 minutes, then you don't need to say anything at all. Or they don't say it to me like that. They usually say, if a preacher, you know, not you, but a preacher, they're a little more kind than that. Can't say what he has to say in 20 minutes. He shouldn't say anything at all. And my response to that is always the same. If, you can, if a preacher can study all week and only has 20 minutes of content, he probably should do something else than preach. But there is a, a hunger and a thirst for short sermons. And you'll find that quite frequently. Not here, usually but other places you'll find it. There's also uh, been a, a largely a minimization of the, 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 both the quality and the depth of the content that's delivered in the preaching context. People, uh, we're told, aren't really interested in, in a deep study of the text. They're not really interested in theology. They're not really interested in a careful examination of the words of the Bible. Um, and so these things are, are replaced then by stories and jokes and advice and self-help talks and things of that such. So in a 20-minute sermon, you get a verse or two read and then stories and anecdotes. And the goal here isn't to 
dump on what other people do. The point is to make the point that Luke makes, and that is the power and authority that flows through Christian ministry is the power and the authority of the Word of God. And when you eliminate the Word of God, then you're building on a foundation of some other kind of false power and false authority, and it will crumble at some point because it isn't real and it isn't from the Lord. That kind of preaching brings an awful result. It might be popular, it might be entertaining, it might be appealing, it might be emotional, but it will utterly lack authority. It will lack authority. Because authority in preaching doesn't come from the preacher. You need to hear that loud and clear. The authority in preaching never comes from the preacher. It comes from the Word of God. I have no authority to tell you anything in your life apart from what the Word of God says and how you ought to respond to that and applying it to your life. That's the only authority I have. I don't have any great wisdom that has authority for you. What I have is the Word of God. That's it. I can tell you the Word of God. I can read it. I can tell you what it means by what it says, and I can tell you how it in general applies to your life, and I can, I, can, I can call you to obey it and to respond to it with authority, and that has authority, and it has power, and if you'll listen, it will change you. But if you ask me whether you should buy a Ford or a Chevy, I have no authority whatsoever to tell you that. You should buy the Ford, but it's just my opinion. It's just my opinion. There's no authority in that. Just my, my opinion. Only true authority comes from the Word of God, and that's the truth. Well, Jesus is preaching. He's preaching with authority. And as he's preaching with authority on this particular day, he, his preaching generates a response from a very unlikely source, doesn't it? We're told, uh, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice. So just pause for a minute and think through this. The next event that takes place in the context of Jesus' preaching ministry after Sabbath is he's going to Capernaum, he's preaching in the synagogue, and while he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, a demon reveals itself where? In the congregation. Everybody's kind of looking around right now. Let that sink in for a minute, right? Let that sink in for a minute. In the gathered body on the Sabbath, a demon is present. And as Jesus is preaching with authority, he's preaching the truth, and he's preaching it with authority, this demon is absolutely horrified, so much so that it blurts out in the middle of a sermon. Now that'll liven up a church service right there. I can promise you that. That will liven things up in a moment. Anybody who was dozing off at that moment was wide awake, right? When a demon blurts out in the middle of the church, and I tell you, I, as I thought about this this week, I, I thought, you know, as we read this sort of in a modern context, we sort of glaze over the shocking nature of this event. I mean, this is the stuff of horror movies. This is not funny and jokey here. I mean, we're making light of it in some sense, but in the reality of the moment, it was not funny. It would have been horrifying. This is a real demonic possession. A demon has utter control over this man. He has control over his voice. He has control over his body. This man no longer has the power to resist its will. This complete power over this individual. He's consumed by this demon and he's powerless to do anything to stop it. It is a horrific condition to be in. Horrific. And that's what happens in the middle of their Sabbath service. Luke says there's a man with the spirit of an unclean demon. Luke is a physician. And he wants us to know for sure 
what's going on here. He wants us to know for sure. This is not a man suffering from a psychological disorder. This is not a man who is in deep depression. This is not a man who's suffering from some strange sort of epilepsy. No, this is a man who's under complete control of a fallen angel. And we live in a day when this kind of thing is written off as religious superstition, right? We're told there is no supernatural, there is no God, there are no demons. We live in a world where materialism is embraced. The idea that this physical world is all that there is. There isn't anything before, there isn't anything above, anything below, anything after. This is what we've got. And there's a material explanation, we're told, for everything that takes place and everything that happens. If, if there isn't an explanation that we can think of materially, science will one day tell us what that really was. We're told that things like demon possession are just... You know, we read about that stuff in the Bible. We can't really believe it. Those are just sort of an analysis by ignorant people in the past who just didn't understand psychological diseases, and so they, they sort of attributed any sort of mental illness to demons. Well, Luke is a physician, and he makes clear that's not what's going on here. What are we to make of this? Are, are, is, is, is there such a thing as this? I mean, is, are demon possessions real? Is this the figment of somebody's imagination? Well, I'll tell you this, the Bible declares it's real here in many places throughout. So you're faced with that dilemma. If you're going to reject the reality of demon possession, then you're going to reject a significant portion of the text of the New Testament that declares that it's real and that it happens. Secondly, I would say human experience confirms it. You can do a search for yourself because our time is running short, but an article in Huffington Post just in 2017, a couple years ago, the title by a contributor called Stafford Betty, that's a strange name, but he writes this article, and the article caught my attention. Why should we take, quote, he's got in quote, demonic possession seriously? Well, I thought, I want to know that. Why should we? So I read the article. And what's fascinating about this particular writer's article is he goes on to affirm the reality of demonic possession in the modern world. Yet, here's what he says. Before looking at these feats, and he's going to talk about some uh, ex examples of what he calls demon possession. He said, before looking at these, let me clarify what I mean and don't mean by demonic spirits. I don't mean anything like devils with tails and pitchforks who fell from heaven with Lucifer, who've been cursed by God to an eternal life in some cosmic ghetto. I mean intelligent beings, insensible to us, with a will of their own, who oppress us, and in advanced cases possess our bodies outright. Most of them, he says, and possibly all of them, once lived on earth. And he goes on to explain, in this most convoluted way, how demons are real. They're just not the kinds of demons that the Bible talks about. Isn't that fascinating? You can't believe the stuff that the Bible says, because that's outdated and ridiculous. I mean, who would believe such a thing? But let me tell you what they are. Here's my even more ridiculous explanation for this. But he says, after further, after clear examination of a multitude of cases, he says, in the few hundred words that I'm allowed here, I'll describe some of the physical displays that the demonically possessed are capable of. He says, all of them suggest something decidedly superhuman. He talks about the cases that he saw over and over, where people spoke with voices that were not their own where physical contortions took place that were beyond the control of the individual. People literally levitating off of the ground in ways that were unexplainable. In one particular case uh, from Gary, Indiana, 
a young man in the presence of a social worker and a doctor walked sideways, sideways up a wall and backward. Things that were undeniable. Words, supernatural strength. In one case I read about this week, um, uh, a woman no more than 100 pounds uh, in one particular encounter literally tossed a Catholic priest of 200 pounds across the room. Well, you can read more about that frightening stuff on your own. There's another article by CNN that explains very clearly the same thing in just the last couple of years. The point being, the phenomenon are real and they're there. People don't know what to make of it, so they come up with other, all kinds of other things. Dead people still living and such. But what we read in Luke chapter 4 is not Hollywood. This isn't make-believe. This is a real affliction. This is a man who's controlled by a demon. It's real. It's not Hollywood. I'll say this. Today, it's real, but it's rare. It's real, but it's rare. There's a lot more that we'll say about that as we move on because we're going to encounter this many, many times. But I'll say this. During the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, all hell launched itself against Jesus and the apostles and the early church. And so we saw a lot of demonic activity. What I think we see both biblically and in church history is a severe tapering off of that as time moves on after the crucifixion and resurrection. I'll explain that more later. But I can make the argument, I think, that demons prefer to remain hidden today. They do their best work when nobody believes that they exist. But in this case, everybody believed they exist in Luke chapter 4 in Capernaum because the demons spoke in the middle of church and got everybody's attention. Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The demon has remarkable theology, doesn't he? He understands two very clear things. He knows who Jesus is precisely, and he knows, at least in part, what he's come to do, to destroy Satan and the demons. What he doesn't know is if that time is right now, and he's afraid that it is. Rather than engage this demon, rather than debate the demon, rather than to dialogue with the demon, what does Jesus do? He simply responds, again, with the authority of his own word, and he says, be silent and come out of him. Be silent. Don't say another word. And you get out of that man right now. And we're told by Luke that immediately right there in the, right there in the synagogue building, the demon throws the man on the floor violently and comes out. And it, immediately and completely, this man is healed. And the demon is gone. gone. Jesus gives a direct order to a demon and he has no choice but to obey. He gets out of the man. It's remarkable. Had to have been an amazing thing to see. Had to have been an amazing thing to see. Nobody can do things like that. It was unheard of. 
But Jesus doesn't have the authority that just shows up in his preaching through his teaching of the word, but he has the authority that by the spoken word, even the supernatural realm must bow to his will. He can speak to a demon, and the demon has no choice but to obey and come out. And that's what Luke wants us to see, the authority of Christ in his words, whether preaching or whether speaking to a demon, or as we're going to see in the next part of the text, whether speaking to a debilitating fever and disease, that when he has power and authority, it's an authority that is comprehensive. It's an authority over all of the known world. There is none who rise above him, and he has authority over all. And if you just want to sort of bring this to a conclusion here, if you recall what Luke is trying to do in writing this gospel, he's writing to a man named Theophilus who is dealing with doubts and questions about his faith in the Lord Jesus. And so he's writing this whole gospel to remind him that Theophilus, and to anybody else who ever doubts, that your faith is not in vain. Your faith is right where it needs to be. And it's right where it needs to be because Jesus Christ is the only one who has this kind of authority. He is indeed the Son of God, and it has been evidenced by the, the, the authority with which he speaks, the authority that he has over demonic spirits, and the authority he has even over physical Ill, illness and ailments. All of that points to one conclusion. He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And your only hope is to place your faith in him and to place your trust in him and to believe upon him. So I don't know where you are this morning in your faith. I don't know how much of this you've heard before. I don't know how much you've considered the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just been thinking about this Christianity stuff. You've been thinking about Jesus. Maybe you're just here this morning because you're interested in just some more information about the Bible or information about who this Jesus is. You're just sort of exploring and trying to weigh out the facts. What you need to hear loud and clear this morning, not from me or any authority that comes from me, but on the authority of the Word of God, is that the Jesus of history is the very Son of God in human flesh. That we know that because he told us that, and we know that because of the effect of his ministry and the authority that he carried himself with, the way that he spoke, the things that he said, the impact of everything that came out of his mouth, the authority over even supernatural beings that nobody else could say a word to and do anything, the authority over illness. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And the only rational choice that a human being can make in light of the reality that they are sinners who are destined for an eternal hell apart from external help is to bow before the Lord Jesus, to confess that he is who he says he is, not just in an academic sense, but to submit one's life to him and to abandon all other hopes of salvation and to look to him alone to save you, to forgive you, to redeem your soul, to give you new life. He is the only one who can do it because he's the authoritative Lord of the universe. And on the authority of the word of God this morning, you must believe upon him. You have no hope apart from Christ. Only the same destiny of this demon that's thrown out of this man a lake of fire. Don't believe a lie when you know the truth. Believe on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. As we read the Gospel of Luke more and more, what we find is that the truth of what is revealed in your word is so far beyond sort of the fanciful images that we have in our mind of who you are. That you're remarkable. 
that to have seen you was to see authority and power unlike anything we've ever seen. To hear your words were to hear truth in every syllable and to be astonished and amazed. What astonishes and amazes me, Lord, is that you would reveal yourself to people like us. People who are fallen, people who are broken in many ways, people who fall short of your glory, people who don't have all of our stuff together, people who make mistakes, people who mess up and live with regrets and pain. And yet you come to us. You don't demand that we come to you, you come to us. You live a righteous life in our place since we couldn't live one on our own. You give your own life, pay the price of death for our sins so we don't have to pay it for ourselves. And you stand before us and you say, believe in me, trust in me. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll give you eternal life. We're amazed by that. By the kind of love that would drive you to do that for people like us. And the only response that makes any sense is for us to humble ourselves before you with hearts overflowing with gratitude and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what I could never do. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Dwell my life. Become the Lord and Savior of my world. Make me what I'm not. Righteous and holy like you. Lord, I pray for the man or the woman who's here this morning who's been thinking about this but never taken that step. Would you drive them across the line this morning on the authority of your word for your glory? For those who know you, Lord, I pray that we would be astonished and amazed once again at who you are, that we'd be driven to gratitude and worship more than ever. Holy Spirit, apply the truth to our lives this morning. As we close our time together, we pray. Amen.